Okay, we are into chapter three. Um, we've obviously had a um, a week off last week in terms of the book of Ruth. We'd uh, covered the first two chapters, um, which we'll give a, just a very brief recap in just a moment. What I'd like to try and do this evening is quite a, a tall order, but I'd like to try and like to do chapters three and four. Um, we were originally going to do these over two weeks, but there's there's such a flow between these two chapters that I think it would be better if we can just to get the whole thing moving and we we'll get to the end and then. Um, We'll, um, next week we're going to look at all the, uh, or start to look at the models that are actually interwoven in this book, things that are below the surface, um, but they're just, just um, staggering when you start to see the design. Um, and, you know, we, we've we seen in other books as we've looked at them, um, the design that God has put in there, you know, um, shadows of things that were to come. Um, and um, God says that he's spoken in similitudes, um, these kind of ideas that have kind of, uh, he's used a real example um, to be like a model of something that would have to happen later, um, and normally all in reference to Jesus. Um, but I've just been absolutely amazed uh, in the book of Ruth, the number of these that there are. There are just so, so many. Um, so what hopefully we'll do next week is go through that, but I wanted to leave it because we may need more than just the, the one week to go through those and talk through those because there's just so much there. So we're going to try and cover all this, uh, chapters 3 and 4 uh, of the, the surface text, as it were, uh, this week. Um, just to, a recap so to bring us into the chapters, obviously we, we start off with uh, chapter 1, um, the setting of the book is in the time of the judges, uh, a very, very dark period in Israel's history, and uh, we're introduced to this man named Elimelech uh, and his family, uh, he marries his, uh, his wife Naomi, and they move um, with their two sons, Marlon and Chilion, um, to the land of Moab, while they're there all the men die, um, and um, but the two sons had married before they died, and then Ruth comes back to the land. Initially, the two daughter-in-laws are coming with her, um, and then Orpha, one of the daughter-in-laws, decides that she's going to return to her own people and her own gods, uh, whereas this, this young woman, Ruth, decides she's going to come back with Naomi into the land of Israel, which they do, um, because the famine that had been the reason they'd left the land in the first place has now ended, and there's now bread again uh, in the land. Um, and they go through that, and obviously, as they're going back, you know, Ruth's explaining to, to Naomi that you know we've got nothing. You know, we'd we'll be very much poor when we get there. And um, we get into chapter two, and uh, Ruth then decides that she's going to go out, taking advantage of this law um, that is um, laid down in the Torah, where there's this law of gleaning that for the for the, for the foreigners, for the widows. Uh, etc. That if they were to go to a field, the people that were the, the gathering up the crops were to leave the corners of the field. Uh, and we talked about this. It's something that still happens today. Um, and um, obviously, they Ruth went out and collected this. And obviously, she's there and she notices this chap called Boaz, and Boaz notices her. And it goes on. She goes back, speaks to her mother-in-law about it, and Naomi is delighted because obviously, suddenly, she realizes that actually, you know, that there could be a future in this. Um, that could benefit them all because this chap Boaz uh, is actually a relative of the family um, and uh, we'll deal with all those things again we talked about um, um, the Leverite marriage and the law of redemption we're going we're to cover those in more depth as we go through this evening um, and Ruth then is um, she gets to speak to Boaz and he says you know stay in my field work here don't go anywhere else and uh, we get up to the end of um, um, verse uh, 23 of chapter 2 and uh, so she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law and we said this could be anything up to three months um, depending on, on obviously when they'd started um, so it was a reasonable period of time and, and Ruth is going back day after day after day and no doubt Boaz is there day after day after day seeing if she's going to turn up and we, we commented last time about the, the relationship that was starting to blossom um, which was really quite lovely. Um, so that's what we got up to. So we're kind of anything up to three months later on now. And um, then Naomi decides it's time to start things moving. Uh, she's not happy with the progress, uh, it would appear. And uh, so we go into chapter 3. And chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And um, Naomi is genuinely concerned about Ruth's future. Um, obviously, uh, Ruth has been very kind and come back with Naomi and supported her. Uh, Boaz had already commented on that. He was aware of that and mentioned that the, the whole town was aware uh, of Ruth's kindness. Um, but uh, Naomi, obviously, is thinking about Ruth's future and what she's going to do. So basically, she puts the question, um, shall I not seek rest for thee? Now, what she's saying is then, uh, have you ever thought of getting remarried and settling down? And this is really what's going on. The Hebrew word, 
um, for rest there is the word uh, manuka, uh, which literally means quiet or uh, a settled spot or, in a figurative sense, a home. So this is what, what uh, Naomi is actually saying. You know, um, you know, shall I not find a home, somewhere for you to settle down? This is what she's implying. Uh, then it may be well with thee. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, Naomi's not just doing this on, on the off chance. She's obviously aware by now uh, that there's something going on between Ruth and Boaz. And love is very difficult to conceal. Uh, we, we talked about this the other week that, you know, sometimes when you're in a relationship, you try and do those things that nobody else notices. Uh, and yet everybody else knows fully what's going on. And you try and be secretive and it's just, you know, you, you can't keep these things like that a secret. Um, but um, for whatever reasons, Ruth had apparently felt it not her place to initiate anything, anything further with Boaz. Uh, maybe it's because she was a foreigner and she'd come into this land that was not her own. Um, maybe it's because she was a poor um, girl and she was out there in, in, almost you know, begging for bread. Um, and Boaz was a very rich man. Um, and she just maybe felt it wasn't her place to do that. But Naomi, um, you know, I think the, the Hebrew word is chutzpah, uh, had a little bit more, you know, get up and go, and she kind of encourages Ruth to to go and you know, you know, get this ball rolling. Um, and uh, I just thought it was interesting, you know, if that is indeed Ruth's reactions, you know, it's the way that we also should come to Christ, you know, in a sense of poverty, realizing that we actually have nothing to bring. Uh, and that was the position that Ruth was in uh, before Boaz. Both Boaz uh, was a wealthy um, man of great standing in the town and community. Um, Ruth was this girl who had nothing. You know, and when we come to Christ, and we've talked already that uh, Boaz is a type of Christ and Ruth is a type of the church, that when we come to Christ, that's how we must come, dependent solely on him. Um, Matthew Henry comments, I just thought it was uh, you know, worth mentioning here, there's just a couple of things he said. Uh, he said, a married state is, or should be, a state of rest to young people. Wandering affections are then fixed, and the heart must be at rest. Um, and this is, again, what... Um, and Naomi was seeking for Ruth. Um, there's there's various bits in the New Testament, isn't there? Uh, a particular bit I'm thinking of where um, Paul um, suggests that you know for the for the young women, for the young widows, that not to get into into um, serving because they, they may end up then wanting husbands again. Um, and um, you know, so um, obviously Naomi wants to see Ruth settle down. She realised that she's she's still young enough uh, to have a family and everything else. Um, I thought it was also interesting um, seeing Naomi here in, in kind of a parent role to Ruth, that she's looking for a godly husband. Um, and that certainly is a responsibility of Christian parents to, to encourage their children to seek godly, uh, godly partners. And uh, Matthew Henry again commented, he said, um, and be it always remembered that it is best for us which is best for our souls. I thought that was quite a good, uh, good comment. Um, you know, that if we are seeking things, we should really be seeking things that are going to be good for us from an eternal point of view, not just from a here and now or, or whatever. Um, okay, then uh, verse 2. And now is not Boaz of our kindred, this is uh, uh, Naomi speaking, and now is not Boaz, Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou was, and obviously Ruth's been working with uh, the young girls that have been working with for Boaz, and uh, it says, Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. So to start with verse 1, Naomi saying, Have you ever thought of getting married? Now she's saying, I know just the guy. And uh, obviously, you know, trying to get things moving here. And saying, Actually, as it happens, tonight he's going to be on the threshing floor. And, you know, so this is what she's setting up here. Um, now, obviously, we know that there's something already been going on here. Um, it's uh, Joe Foch comments on the fact that it's actually it's a, it's a dangerous thing to try and start matchmaking um, because sometimes he said if you end up getting people together that don't didn't want to be together, he, well, he he says you can come and do the marriage counselling afterwards. Um, he says suggest you leave it to the Lord, but. Um, um, Naomi obviously here has been doing her homework because she's found out already that this particular evening Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor. Uh, so she's kind of made the plans and you know, everything else. The threshing floor, um, in, in Israel, what they did um, when they were with the grain, and I think it's not, obviously not just Israel, but that area in the Middle East, um, the threshing floor would literally be a, a kind of a place uh, normally made out of just stone on the ground with a little wall around it. And um, it would normally be on top of a hill uh, for the simple reason that they would go up to the top of the hill, um, they would then beat out the grain, 
Uh, they'd actually use a thing called a sled um, to do this. Um, and then they, they would literally throw it up in the air. The chaff, being all lighter, would blow off and then go and land in a pile. Um, and then all the, the grain would fall and get trapped by this little wall. And that was the idea. That's what they did it. Um, if, in the book of um, Judges, we actually read the story of Gideon. Now, Gideon's actually threshing... Um, down the bottom in the valley, out of the way, because at the time he didn't want the, the Midianites to come and steal what they had. Um, so he was kind of doing it out of the way. So it's a kind of a, a different situation. But normally um, the threshing floor would be up on top of a hill. Um, the um, Latin word for the sled that was used to crush the grain uh, is um, tribulum, uh, which is uh, where we get our word tribulation from. And the whole idea behind this is this being crushed. And that's that's where the word has come from. Um, and it's quite interesting, actually, when you start. There's a lot of little models in this. Um, but the whole idea that the grain would be crushed uh, and then you kind of throw it up in the air. The grain itself would fall into one pile and then all the chaff would then fall in another pile. And the chaff then would be burnt up, but the grain would then be gathered and then put in the barn. And when you think about what Jesus said, um, uh, particularly in um, Matthew 13, um, you know, and uh, various other passages as well. Um, but this is exactly what's going to happen at the end of the age. There's going to be this separation, and, and the chaff uh, is going to end up being burnt up and going into the tribulation, whereas the the wheat is going to be gathered and taken into Jesus' barn. As I say, as Matthew 13 parables particularly uh, deal with that kind of issue. Jesus, Jesus uses these ideas that have been familiar to the people at the time. So, um, it's... Um, at the threshing floor also, um, the, we're going to see in a moment that Ruth then falls before the feet of Boaz. And it's at that point that we also, in our own lives, should fall before, before the feet of our own Redeemer uh, and throw ourselves upon his mercy and grace. This is exactly what Ruth is going to do, uh, as we'll see in a moment. Um, because it's when we are in that position that you know we are threshed and separated and that the, the things of the world are kind of driven out of us um, that we, we can really be where God wants us to be. You know, we read uh, in Hebrews 4.12 about the word of God dividing effectively between body, soul and spirit. Um, John 3.6 says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And there has to be, in, any, in, in the life of any Christian, this um, acknowledging that there has to be this kind of division going on between the old life and the new life. Uh, the, the old carnal life that was interested in its own things and, and doing its own thing its own way, uh, and the spirit-led life, which is allowing God to, to be in charge of the reins, as it were. Um, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15 that um, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and it's worth us always keeping in mind that you know, this life that we're living is a temporary thing you know, and the, 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 the physical world is not the reality um, the, the reality is the spiritual side of things and that's going to be eternal uh, there's lots and lots of ideas in amongst all that um, worth digging into and playing around with on your own if you want to um, but anyway Naomi's saying, you know, go up to the threshing floor because this is where Boaz is going to be working tonight. And then she goes on in verse 3 and says, Wash thyself therefore and anoint thee and put thy raiment upon thee and get thee down to the floor, um, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. Now, most girls can look good when the occasion demands it. And this is obviously what's going on here. Okay? Yeah. I spent ages on that line. But no, it's, it's true, isn't it? That you know, she, she's going out tonight. She's going to try and you know get her man. So she's doing everything she can, and she, you know, I, I think it's quite important. I mean, Joe Foch again comments on, on the things that she's that, that Naomi suggests, which is have a wash. Like, good idea, you know. Anoint the, you know, make yourself smell nice. That's going to work, you know, as well. Um, most of that stuff, I think, that probably Ruth would have been all right with on her own. But then there's this great bit of advice that she gives, uh, which is wait until he's finished eating. I think this is fantastic. Uh, I think it's the thing for a girl. You know, man's ears work better when his tummy's full. Okay, it's just a basic principle. So, um, and that's really what what Naomi's saying. And she's, you know, that's something like that. Yeah, yeah, and it is true. Um, we're we're very shallow in that respect. Um, Ruth is saying. Uh, sorry, Naomi is saying to Ruth, though, you know, don't make yourself known because. Um, <laughs> The um, 
the, the workers of Boaz, uh, the, who would have been here as well at, uh, for this occasion, as we'll see in a moment, would have known Ruth. Ruth, Ruth spent most of the summer with them all. Um, so Naomi's saying, like, just kind of keep your head low, keep out of the way, don't let people really know you're there, uh, until they're all done eating and drinking. And in verse 4 we read on, And it shall be that when he lies down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet, uh, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. Now, to start with, that may seem a little bit odd. Some commentators seem to have a bit of a problem with this and think that there's something very indecent going on. It's not that at all, as we'll see as we, we go through it. Um, it was a traditional thing that after you'd done the threshing of the barley, etc., uh, and you finished it, at the end of the harvest time, um, that obviously when the, the wheat and the chaff was separated, that you'd actually have a feast. Now, this would be a reward uh, for the workers, uh, and it would also be normal then to sleep at the threshing floor um, to protect the crop from thieves. So that was basically the way it worked. I thought that was a lovely little model as well in that. Um, let's just read those again. Um, that, um, that after the, 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 kind of the, the separating of the wheat and chaff at the end of the harvest, there would be a, a feast and reward for the workers. You know, that, I just, just, you know, anyway. Um, Naomi um, obviously is confident that, that, that um, Boaz is, is actually going to be there. She's, she's made these plans. In fact, I, I will just share this story because um, it just made me laugh. Um, nothing specifically to do with this, but um, Joe Foch was sharing an example, saying, you know, that, that in a sense, Naomi was taking a chance in this, but it just shows that God's hand was in the whole thing. What happens if Boaz hadn't have been there and, and Naomi, had, as Ruth, had ended up, you know, getting down by somebody else's feet? You know, it could have all gone horribly wrong. And he told the story of a, a pastor friend of his before his, his pastor friend was married. Uh, he'd taken, they were actually going to go out on a double date, this, this pastor before he was married and his girlfriend, uh, another friend and, and his girlfriend. Um, but the other girl wasn't very well. So the, just the three of them went. And they went to, to the, one of these, I think it's in America, they have these like drive-up cinema things and they were sitting there. And um, he was sitting in the front with his girlfriend and um, he, he's decided that he'd go and get a drink for them all. So he went off to get a drink and, and he came back and he noticed that his friend was now sitting in the front seat of the car. And he thought, well, he's obviously done this to annoy me, so I'm not going to buy it, I'm not going to say anything. So he just quietly got in the back seat of the car and sat there and thought, I'm not even going to look at them. And so he just, just carried on watching the film. But five minutes later he realised it wasn't his car. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know. But... Um, it's a case of mistaken identity, but fortunately that didn't happen. God was in this situation, and um, um, as we see. Uh, let's uh, carry on. Verse 5, it says, And she said unto her, um, this is Ruth, Naomi's telling Ruth, this is what I want you to do. Uh, and so Ruth says, uh, sorry, yeah, Ruth says, And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. And that's just a simple line, and I kind of I, I skipped over that one to the next line, and then I went back to it afterwards, and I thought... Actually, there's, there's another little kind of uh, model in that as well, because what we've got here is Naomi, who is a Jew that has been moved by God um, to speak what God is saying to her. And Ruth, as this Gentile bride, um, says that she will obey. And I just thought, you know, for us, we've got a Jewish book written by Jews who are moved by God. Um, and we as Gentiles have been given this book that's been given to us for our learning and our instruction uh, and everything else. You know, and are we as willing to heed the instructions in this book as Ruth was? It just, you know, there's just, a, again, a little bit of a model there that, you know, Ruth was so willing um, to, to act and to do, um, follow all these instructions. And this is, you know, she said, all that you say unto me I will do. Um, if only we could be like that in our lives as well. And verse 6, And she went down unto the floor, and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly, and uncovered his feet, and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight, that the man was afraid, and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now this must have been some surprise for Boaz, he wasn't expecting this at all. Um, just to clarify, the expression, his heart was merry, uh, it's not implying he was drunk. Um, that's, that's not what it means. Um, looking at the Hebrew words, the, the whole idea, he was content, he was satisfied, he was cheerful after a good day's work. You know, everything was done, he's had a nice meal, and he's now sitting down to have a nice little nap. And uh, um, whether by this time he was on his own or whether the others were around but were asleep, uh, we're not told. Um, but certainly nobody else seems to be aware of the event. Um, and um, Ruth comes, and as, as we read there, um, 
sorry, verse 7. Um, he went to the at the end of the court, and she came softly and uncovered his feet. So what she just kind of just lifts this, his you know, uh, robe or coat or whatever he's got and just uncovers his feet. It's kind of a gentle way of waking him up. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever woken somebody up in the past, but if you're going to go, wake up! It's, it doesn't do the trick. So it's a, just a gentle thing, you know. Uh, and then Barrow wakes up and sees this woman at the end of the bed and says, uh, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thy handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Um, now this is the bit that some people seem to struggle with. Um, well, you know, what actually is she asking? What is she saying? Basically, what she's saying is that she wants to come under Barrow's authority. That's what she's asking. Uh, she's asking Boaz, uh, and he would have been fully aware of this, as we'll see, um, to become uh, her kinsman redeemer. He's a family member, and he's the only one that she's aware of that is able to do this thing, to, to effectively marry her and to purchase back the land. Now, we'll look at these scriptures in just a moment. Um, so... Um, uh, let's just this idea of uh, skirt in um, Matthew nine twenty, Matthew fourteen. In fact, let's just just quickly look at some of these ideas. Uh, we'll get some of them. Matthew nine verse twenty. It actually, makes sense of some of these other passages that maybe we read and not really fully understand them. Uh, Matthew nine. Verse 20, it says, And behold, a woman, which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years, came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may, touch, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned, about and, uh, turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith has made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Um, she touched the hem of his garment. Why was that? Because she recognised the authority. And for the Jews, the hem of the garment was something that symbolised their authority. Um, you know, like we have, um, if you've got people in the, the Navy or Army or whatever, they have stripes on their arm, uh, etc. It's a symbol of their rank. So it was for, for the Jews in this culture with the hem of the garment. It was a symbol of their authority. And this woman is recognising the authority. Uh, another example is in Matthew 14. Verse 36. In fact, we'll just pick it up from um, verse 34. It says, And when they were gone, 14 verse 34 I'm reading, And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about, and brought unto him all that were diseased, and uh, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as uh, touched were made perfectly whole. The same thing again. Now, if you read those without understanding this, they would just seem strange bits of scripture. Uh, another one. Let's uh, jump right back to First Samuel. First uh, Samuel twenty-four. Shall we go from? Let's just—I'll just read from the beginning. And it came to pass that when this is Saul is out chasing David, uh, he says, "When it came to pass that when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that he was told, uh, told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats by the way, where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave." And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him, because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And the men said unto him, The Lord, for, uh, sorry, and he said unto him, Men, uh, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointing of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My lord the king, 
And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt? Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord has delivered thee into mine hand in the cave, and some bade me kill thee. But mine eyes spared thee, and I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, the skirt of thy robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe, uh, and killed thee not, know thou, and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet, yet thou huntest uh, my soul to take it. Uh, the Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. Okay, it goes on. So we have the situation that David gets in there uh, and cuts off the bottom of Saul's robe. But when he's done it, he feels bad about it. And why is he? Why, why that? You know, what you think? Well, he's only just ruined his coat. It's not all he's done. Um, but no, it's because of this whole authority thing, uh, and it was a, a real um, um, insult, if you like, to Saul. Uh, and David feels bad that he's done it. So that was just another one of those examples uh, that's worth sharing. Sorry, is that a bit bright for you? <laughs> Sorry about that. Is that right, Rachel? Is that? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, um, okay. There's also in, in Ezekiel um, uh, chapter sixteen, verse eight. We read the same idea uh, where God is saying that He's going to put His authority and protection over the nation of Israel. So Ezekiel sixteen, verse eight. And this is, um, now when I passed thee by and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with me, saith the Lord God, and thou became mine. Okay, so this is another one of those scriptures that God is in, in this particular saying that he's done the same thing. He's put his authority, his protection, his covering. Uh, and that's exactly what Ruth is doing. Um, um, now, uh, the other week I mentioned that um, for this this whole idea of um, the, this Leverite marriage, uh, you remember from from um, the scriptures we looked at previously, um, this idea that if uh, a man were to die and leave his wife, but they hadn't any children, then the the brother or whatever relatives were there would be the next in line. They they would then um, they didn't have to. It wasn't a legal requirement, but it was expected of them that they would then go in and that the offspring, the first child, would then be um, raised up in the name of the dead brother uh, to carry on uh, his his name, etc. Um, but for that to happen, there, there had to be some requirements. We mentioned last week. Um, firstly, the the kinsman had to be. We well, had to be a kinsman. So it had to be a family member. That was the, one of the requirements. Secondly, it had to be willing. Okay. And the other thing is, it had to be initiated by the woman. That was a, a major part of it. And when you think in our own situation with our own relationships with the Lord, you know, Jesus first of all had to be a family member. We're going to hit a lot, a lot on this next week. Uh, and we know that Jesus was the second Adam. He was brought into the human race. So in that sense, he was a family member. Um, he was also willing to do it. But the request had to come from the woman. In, this, in our sense, whereas the bride, etc., um, the request has to come from us to the Lord. Um, and in this situation, Boaz, as we'll see, was more than happy to take this opportunity. But unless Ruth had come to him with the request, he couldn't have done anything. The request had to come from her. I think it's quite a, uh, an important thing. Okay, let's move on then. And uh, verse 10, and he said to me, uh, sorry, and he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether rich, uh, whether poor or rich. The Boaz is genuinely taken back by all this. Um, Ruth, after all, is, we presume, an attractive young girl, certainly in terms of character she is. Um, Boaz is possibly a middle-aged man. Uh, we don't know how old he is, doesn't, doesn't tell us, but certainly older. Um, um, Boaz obviously has realised the efforts um, that uh, Ruth has put in to um, support and encourage and bless Naomi. Um, and also Boaz would be aware of the effect that this marriage would have on Naomi. Because effectively Naomi is going to get all her land back. She's going to get everything back that effectively she thought she'd lost for good. 
So this is why he's saying that, that you know, it's an act of kindness, because she wasn't doing it just for Boaz, she wasn't doing it just for herself, but there was other things involved in this. So it, it really was an a, a, you know, act of kindness on her part. And in verse 11 we read, And now, my daughter, Boaz speaking, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people does know that thou art a virtuous woman. So basically Boaz says, yeah, I'll marry you, which is great, it's just what we want. Um, but it's interesting that Ruth was obviously the talk of the town because it says, for all the city of my people does know that thou art a virtuous woman. Um, and it's interesting that, that, that this is what Boaz remarks upon. Uh, it's an essential qualification for a godly wife. Uh, if anybody wants to check it out, Proverbs 31 verses 10 to 31 deal with what a virtuous woman really is. Uh, it's, it's, if you like, the model uh, for the Christian wife. Um, but Ruth had these requirements. You know, beauty, they do say, is only skin deep. Um, and so often people in this world get attracted to just the, the outward, the physical. Um, you know, it's something, we've all been in situations and somebody says, oh, she's nice or whatever. Well, how do you know? You know, all you're looking at is a, is a bodysuit, effectively. That's just the outer shell. You know, unless you know somebody, you don't really know what they're like. Um, whereas in this situation, because of her actions, because of the way she'd conducted herself, people knew that, that Ruth was a beautiful woman, uh, not just a, a surface beauty um, that was going to eventually go old and, old and wrinkly, but this was a beauty that was really deep, that was permanent. Verse 12, And now it is true um, that I am thy near kinsman, uh, which obviously Ruth knew already, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. And that's not what we wanted here. Uh, what... Um, Boaz is saying is, look, there is actually somebody else that is really next in line before me. Um, I like Chuck Mitchell, the way he kind of talks about this. He says, if you were kind of putting this into a kind of a film script, um, what you've got is, um, you know, you, you, you've got your beautiful woman, and then you've got your kind of a Kevin Costner type character. Um, and then, but then there's this other character now that's actually next in line. He says it's going to be something like Danny DeVito. You know, and this is the one that Ruth may have to marry if it's, you know, it goes horribly wrong. Um, so we, we're all hoping this isn't going to happen, which obviously we know it doesn't. But um, there's, um, in uh, verse 11 we read, um, Boaz says, Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee. As the Lord lives, lie down until the morning. So Boaz's hands here were tied by the law. Now there is an incredible parallel here that we'll just touch on in a moment. But Boaz's hands were tied by the law. Um, But if by following the law and the legal requirements, Ruth remained unredeemed, then Boaz says he'll gladly step in. Okay? And we see in this a model of the law which was put in place to redeem us, but it was unable to do it. Okay, the, the law that was given to Moses was given so that we could be right with God. The whole point of the law was that we could be righteous, that if we kept all the requirements of the law, we would be right with God. But that was put in place as a, 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 a redeeming relative, if you like, but it was unable to fulfill it. Uh, and we read about this in Romans uh, Romans says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did um, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and, and, for sin, and condemned sin in the flesh. This is exactly what happened, that, that Jesus couldn't redeem us until the law had done its part. Until the law had been given and failed and was unable to redeem us, then Jesus was able to do his part. And it's just, a, it's just an incredible um, parallel. The more you, you think that through, uh, the more amazing it becomes. <clears throat> and then we go into um, verse 14. And she lay at his feet until morning, and she rose up um, before one could know another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came into the threshing floor. I'm just going to read some comments from Matthew Henry, because I thought they were really quite quite profound on this point. Uh, it says, He had told how Ruth was dismissed by Boaz. It would not have been safe for her to go home in the dead of night. Therefore she lay at his feet, not by his side, uh, until morning. But as soon as ever the day broke, um, that she had light to go home by, she got away, before one could know another, that if she was seen, she might not, uh, she might not be known, um, she might not be known to be abroad so unreasonably. In other words, she, people wouldn't know she's out, you know, 
strange hours of the night. Um, she was not shy of being known um, to be a gleaner in the field, nor ashamed of that mark of her poverty, but she would not willingly be known to be a night walker, for her virtue was her greatest honour and that which she most valued. Boaz dismissed her with a charge to keep uh, counsel and let it not be known that a woman came into the floor and lay all night so near to Boaz. For though they needed not to care uh, not to care much what people said of them, while they were both conscious to themselves of an unspotted purity, yet because few could have come so near the fire as they did and not have been scorched, had it have been known, it would have been occasioned um, suspicious in some and reflections uh, from others good people would have been troubled and bad people would have triumphed and therefore let it not be known note we must always take care not only to keep good conscience but to keep a good name either we must not do that which though innocent is liable to be liable to be misinterpreted or if we do we must not let it be known we must avoid not only sin but scandal i thought it's um it is very well put. You know, the, the situations that we can find ourselves in that are completely innocent, and we know that we're we're in the right right place, and you know we're not offending God. But if other people were to find out what we're doing or find out, they would misinterpret. They wouldn't understand it, uh, and it would actually be a, a, a case where possibly um, you know the name of God and His doctrine would be blasphemed. Um, to quote from Paul. So we need to be careful. Whatever situations we're in, how it's going to appear to other people, whilst it may be fine for us, and we know that it's not a problem, we're okay with God. Um, you know, as he says there, um, we must not. Uh, sorry, we must not only avoid sin but scandal, and that's what's going on here. This is what Boaz is suggesting. So nothing improper had, had taken place between the two of them, um, but because of the way it may have appeared to the people on the outside, uh, they're saying it's keep it quiet. Verse fifteen. Also he said, Bring the veil that thou hast upon thee, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley, and laid it on her. And she went into the city. Why six measures? Well, we'll find out in a moment. The weight of that would be about 60 pounds. Okay, so that's a reasonable amount of weight for her to carry back in the early hours of the morning. Um... As uh, I mentioned last night to, to Joy and Sim, and uh, Joe Fosh again, just uh, comments on the fact that you know the, the, the girls in that era would have been you know strong working girls, you know big muscles and strong teeth and all the rest of it. So, that's, uh. and then um, verse sixteen, uh, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, "Who art thou, my daughter?" And she told her all that the man had done to her. Now it's not because it's dark and she doesn't recognise her. What Naomi's actually saying is, "Who are you then?" Are you Mrs. Boaz? All right, that's what's going on. That's the question. She's saying, can I get a new wedding outfit? And they sit down over a cuppa, no doubt, and uh, Ruth tells Naomi everything. Okay, and women like talking. I've noticed this in my years, uh, especially on subjects like this. Uh, when, it, when it's something to do with, with marriage or these kind of things, and, you know, and they obviously sit down and, uh, says, and she told her all that the man had done to her. So it's obviously a good long conversation. And then verse 17, um, and she said, um, this is Ruth, these six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Okay, and Ruth straight away, sorry, Naomi straight away understands this. Boaz sends only six measures to communicate his intentions to Naomi, which she understands straight away. Anybody got it yet? Why six? What's the number we normally end up dwelling on? What does it mean? Complete. Rest. Complete. So we're one short of complete. Okay. So verse 18. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until they'll know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. Straight away, Naomi clicks what's going on here. This is why it's been six, six measures. Okay. That she knows this was like a code saying, This is going to be dealt with immediately. This is one short of being complete. Okay, so that's the the code, if you like, um, and um, we also have here uh, another kind of a, a bit of a. Um, obviously, Ruth has asked Boaz to be a kinsman redeemer, but now it's all up to him. And this is really what what Naomi's saying. It says, um, "You know, sit still, my daughter, until they know how the matter will fall." There's absolutely nothing that Ruth can do from this point on. 
Okay, it's out of her hands. Uh, she's powerless. Then it's just the same as us. Once we've asked Jesus to be our kinsman redeemer, redeemer, we too are powerless. You know, it's all in His hands. But I don't know about you. But I think that's such a relief because uh, if it was in my hands, I'm sure I'd mess it up. So there's uh, a lot of mistakes that we can make on the way through life, and I think so far I've got most of them. So. Okay, so we're into chapter 4, and we're doing very well. Um, then went Boaz up to the gate, and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spoke came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city, and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. Now, in ancient cultures, the gate of the city was like the town hall. It was the council office. This is where the business was done and you know, all the meetings took place. Uh, Boaz, we've already you know, mentioned previously, was a man of great standing of wealth and strength in the area. Um, so he was known. He may even been the leader of the town council. We don't know. But certainly he, he was you know, fairly prominent. Um, and obviously he has no problem at all. He, he, he greets the relative. Um, the, the implication is he calls him by name. This, this phrase, ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. You know, to our ears it sounds strange, but um, the implication is he called him by name. Um, we're not given the name uh, of this, this uh, other yeah. relative. Sorry? Thank you. Yes, it could have been, couldn't it? It could have been Hosea. Maybe ho was just short for... Anyway, um, but uh, he, obviously the, the chap is more than happy, as Boaz yeah, requests, come and sit down. He's quite happy to go and sit down with him. And then obviously get ten elders of the city, uh, and obviously they sit down as well. Um, and then obviously sit down, what's he going to tell us, what's he going to say? And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, sells a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants, and before the elders of my people. If thou redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. No, that's not what we wanted, was it? <laughs> okay. So Boaz just puts it to him straight. Basically, name, he's got some land. Uh, if you want it, you can have first refusal. Now, Naomi's not been able to buy this land back. The whole idea here is that this land has been mortgaged out, somebody else has got it, but because they're kinsmen, if they want it, they can buy it back from whoever's got it, and it'll be their, then their property. They'll have it because, obviously, there's this family connection. Um, and this whole thing underlines the fact that the Redeemer had to be a family member. And this kinsman gladly accepts. He, obviously, you know, a bit of extra property, why not? Let's go for it. And uh, obviously, particularly in that culture where land uh, was very much the status uh, symbol. Um, but then um, we go into verse 5, and Boaz gives him the small print. And he says, Then Boaz said, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the dead, sort of raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. So Boaz basically is now saying that. If you're going to buy the land, you've got to marry Ruth and then raise up children for the, in the memory of a husband that's died and obviously Elimelech, the father-in-law. Um, that changes things quite a lot. Um, the kinsman at this time decides, no, I don't want to do that. Now, some suggest um, that he was married already uh, and therefore was unable um, to... Um, to do this. He didn't want to cause friction and problems at home and he certainly didn't want to go down this road. Kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Uh, redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. So basically he's saying to Boaz, look, I can't, I'm not going to do this. I'm not, you know, you, why don't you do it? It's a great idea, but you do it. Um, and this partly helps to see the commitment that is required here. And Boaz is obviously saying he's going to do it. But as the kinsman redeemer has to be prepared to give up his inheritance to raise up children for the relative who had died, um, and obviously there's a deliberate parallel here with Jesus who gave up the majesty and the glory of heaven to come and redeem us, um, to raise up children for Adam. Yeah? Um, again, there's this parallel right the way through it. Uh, and obviously as a result of that, Jesus will purchase back the land in the process. Jesus has come to purchase the bride, but will also purchase back the land. And we'll deal with that next week, uh, dealt with very much in Revelation 5. Um Matthew Henry comments, um, 
This makes many shy of uh, the great redemption. They are not willing. This is referring to the um, the kinsman who didn't take up the option. He says this makes many shy of the great redemption. They are not willing to espouse religion. They have heard well of it and have nothing to say against it. They will give it their good word, but at the same time they will not give their good word with it. They are willing to part with it and cannot be bound to it for fear of marrying their own inheritance in this world. Sorry, for fear of marring their own inheritance in this world. Heaven they could be glad of but holiness they can dispense with. It will not agree with the lust they have already espoused, and therefore let, and therefore, let who will purchase heaven at that rate, uh, sorry, and therefore let who will purchase heaven at that rate, they cannot. So what he's implying there is that there's people in this world that are so married to the things of this world that they're not prepared to give those things up. They don't want to lose those things um, to enter into this other relationship. Uh, and yet, Boaz was prepared in this situation to give up that um, for, for Ruth and to, to marry him. Okay. And in verse 7. Now this was the manner in former time uh, in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning char- uh, sorry, changing. For to conform all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbour. And this was a testimony in Israel. Well, let's just read the scripture. If we turn to Deuteronomy 25. And uh, picking up at verse 5. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. And it says, If brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and have no children, the wife of the dead shall not marry uh, without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, and shall take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let, him, let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My brother's... Pardon me, my brother's... My, sorry, my husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel, and he will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, uh, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders, and shall loose his shoe from off his foot, and shall spit in his face, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called uh, in uh, sorry, and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that has his shoe loosed. Okay, so that was this basic procedure that was to go on. Now, you notice there that the woman is supposed to be the one that takes the shoe off and she's supposed to spit in his face and all this stuff. That doesn't happen here. Now, various commentators have suggested why they think it doesn't take place. Uh, ultimately, they didn't want to try and twist this guy's arm. So he said, well, actually, no, I will do it. Because they didn't want that. You know, the whole thing, all they wanted him to do was to say, I'm not going to do it. That was all they really wanted to do. And they go through this gesture anyway, we read in verse 8. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, um, buy it for thee, so he drew it off his shoe. So he kind of went through the procedure, but there was no bitterness, there was no difficulty in, it, in this happening at all. Uh, it wasn't as if Ruth was really after this guy and you know, wanted him you know, uh, to be her husband. Um, so then verse 9, And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have brought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and all that was Mahalon's uh, of the hand of Naomi. So he's brought the whole lot. And with all the elders bearing witness to this event, Boaz is now free as a kinsman to become the redeemer of the land and most importantly of Ruth. Okay, so all the elders have been there. They're now witnesses of this. There's no question about it. Um, and then Boaz continues, uh, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of uh, Mahlon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. So the near kinsman was interested in the land, but not in taking the bride. Boaz, in contrast, was not really interested in the land, but in taking the bride. Um, it's um, Jesus created this world not because he needed anything that he'd created but simply because he wanted to take a bride out of it again i I apologize for quoting joe first so often but um um, one of the things that joe said which again just made me laugh he said jesus 
didn't create watermelons because he wanted a watermelon. You know, the whole thing that God made was for us, for our benefit, for our pleasure. That's why he made creation. Everything that we have is here because God has given it for us. It's made for us. And the reason God created everything that we see is for us. You know, I remember one uh, new year, I was just starting in Genesis, and I just got to, in the beginning, God created. And I just kind of paused at that point, and it just really hit me that everything that God has created, the heavens, the earth, everything, what's the purpose for it? The purpose has been so that he can take a bride, a people for himself, for eternity. That's been the purpose. And that's just mind-blowing when we, we stop and actually consider what God has done and why he's done it. It really is amazing. Um, we read in Matthew thirteen forty four. Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, uh, that when, sorry, that which when a man hath found, uh, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buy that field. So, in the parable, Jesus is saying, you know, the man goes and buys the field, not because he wants the field, but because he wants what's in the field. Same, same idea is coming out again. Um, it would appear that Satan evidently doesn't quite get this because when he tempts Jesus, um, um, we find out that he tries to tempt Jesus, I think it's um, Luke 4, I think it is, um, by offering him the world. Well, Jesus didn't come for the world. Jesus came for the bride. So, you know, yes, it was a temptation. Yes, Satan was trying to appeal to a physical need that Jesus had as well with the turning of the, the bread, uh, the stone offer, offering to turn or getting Jesus to turn the stones into bread. But ultimately, Satan was trying to offer something that Jesus hadn't come for because Jesus was coming, he was doing his Father's will. The whole of God's plan was behind what Jesus did. And, and I think so often when we get tempted, it's because we've got sidetracked from the reality of the situation and we go down a road that we, we really shouldn't be on in the first place and that we approach temptation from the wrong angle. If we're going at it from God's side, then things are different. Um... um Jovo says, what Jesus is saying is that one human soul is more valuable than the entire cosmos and created universe. Apparently Spurgeon said, he came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Okay, um, into verse 11 then. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders uh, said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah. Now, possibly at that point, Boaz is thinking, well, I'm not sure I want that many children. Um, um, which, uh, which two did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrathah, and be famous in Bethlehem? Uh, obviously, this, this seems to have met with great approval from the, the response that he gets there from the elders and the people of the city. Um, we've already mentioned that the people uh, were impressed with Ruth, knowing that she was a virtuous, wo- uh, virtuous woman, um, and... Boaz was obviously a man of great standing in the community, so you can imagine what they're thinking. This is going to be a great wedding. Okay, um, The words that the people spoke weren't just kind words, though. They were also prophetic words, uh, because this is exactly what happens. Um, and um, it's interesting when we find out that the, the name that we, the, we sometimes hear in the, the Christmas um, story, uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Um, Ephrathah means the fruitful place. Um, and I thought, what a contrast to Moab, where everything died, in uh, our little story here. Uh, I thought, if we follow God and allow him to direct our paths, Proverbs 3, 4, and 5, like Ruth did, um, our marriage will also be in a fl- fruitful place, rather than live in a place where God is not and seeing it die. Uh, a marriage without Christ at the centre may survive, but it will be poorer for it. And Ruth, has, she had a marriage in the land of Moab, but um, God wasn't in that marriage, and it died. Um, she comes back to this this place, this fruitful place uh, in God's will where God wants her to be. Um, and uh, obviously it's very blessed as we go on to see in a moment. In verse 12 it says, And let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bore unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. Well, verse 11's comments are really nice. You know, it's like, may God really bless you and this is going to be great. And, you know, maybe you know, be famous, you know, your offspring be famous in Bethlehem. That's lovely. And then we get this one, which is a really strange thing. Because it's saying, let thy house be like Pharaoh's who tame and bore unto Judah. Well, if you know the story, how long have we got? How far have we got to go? Have we got, yeah, we've got just... Oof. Genesis 39, I believe. I'll just quickly look at this. 
Because when you understand the story, it's a really strange thing to be saying. Sorry, 38. Genesis 38. Um, and it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was uh, Shua. And he took her and went in under her. And she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and she bore a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at uh, Jizib when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. We go on and we read through this, that, that all three guys end up dying. Okay, that Judah then gives the next one to, to Tamar, and he dies. The next one to Tamar, he dies. All of these guys die. Um, the reason for it is because of the Canaanite connection. Um, I remember hearing a very good sermon when we first moved into Southern Road um, many, many years ago now. Um, and uh, the whole basis for this uh, is God um, protecting his people Israel. They weren't supposed to intermarry with these other tribes, but this is what Judah had done, and obviously it displeased the Lord. The bottom line is then that, Ju- that, that uh, Judah is left um, um, with a situation where Tamar, his daughter-in-law, has no husband and no children. So what um, uh, Judah basically says is, look, wait till my, my youngest son is grown and then you can have him. And to cut a long story short, the youngest son grows, but Judah doesn't fulfill his promise. So Tamar one day uh, is out and she knows that, uh, that uh, Judah is going to be walking past. Um, and picking up verse 13... Uh, it says, and it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to um, Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her uh, with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go uh, go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou may come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thy hand. And he gave it to her and came in unto her and she conceived by him. And she arose and went her way and laid her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of the friend of the Adullamite uh, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of that place said that there was no harlot in that in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I send this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass about three months later that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, has played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burned. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, I am with child. And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose these are, the signet and the bracelets and the staff. This is what we call a sticky situation. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila my son, and he knew her again no more. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass that when she travailed, that one put out his hand, um, the one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. And it came to pass, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Pharaoh's. That is the Pharaoh's that we're talking about. And in the story of Ruth now, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's, yeah, whatever your pronunciation there. But, um, this is the one in the book of Ruth that we're reading about. And the people are saying, you know, let your house be like that, like an illegitimate child. Which, on the surface, is not the kind of thing, really, you want people to be saying as a kind of a blessing to you. However, all these things in Scripture, the more we dig, the more we uh, discover. Um, in um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 2, it says, 
A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Well, uh, Pharaoh was in this position. He was an illegitimate child. Um, so therefore he was, and by this, this phrase, not entering into the congregation, uh, it means that they were not to um, be considered part of the people of Israel as such um, until the tenth generation. Um, well, as we'll see in a moment, uh, as we get a little genealogy right at the end of the chapter, if, I just, just, if you just look at verses 18 to 22, it says, Now these are the generations of Pharaohs. Pharaohs begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, Ram begat uh, Aminadab, Aminadab begat Nashon, Nashon begat Salmon, Salmon begat Boaz, Boaz begat Obed, Obed begat Jesse, Jesse begat David. If you count those, ten generations. And the tenth generation is David, who by this time would then be legally entitled um, to effectively be a part of the congregation, but also to minister uh, on behalf of the congregation. Okay, so it's a prophetic thing. Um, it's also, th- there's th- th- this all crops up in as well if, in, in the genealogy, both in Matthew um, and um, also in Luke as well. Uh, Matthew gives us the royal line um, down to, to Joseph, Jesus' supposed earthly father, um, but obviously was just his stepdad effectively. Uh, Luke gives us the bloodline, which comes down via, via Mary. We'll deal with those some other time. There's some fascinating insights in that as well. Um, but just as a little aside, uh, just before we wrap this up tonight, um, you remember that Saul became king. Um, and people have wondered why, you know, why did God appoint, appoint Saul and then kind of effectively remove him from being king? What, you know, was it a mistake? Well, Right from the start, God had intended David to be the king. David was the king that God had planned for Israel. And, and God had already told them, if you read through, um, I think Deuteronomy particularly, you'll read references there to the king that you're going to have. You know, when you have a king and you know, that he's got to read from the book of the law and all these kind of requirements, you mustn't multiply himself, horses from Egypt, or take many wives. And obviously, you know, Solomon did all of those things. Um, but those were you know, requirements laid down. So it was already preordained by God that Israel was to have a king and yet when we get uh, into Samuel chapter 8 first Samuel chapter 8 the people are crying out saying why can't we have a king they want a king like all the, the nations around them and you know God at the time says to Samuel don't worry they've not rejected you but they've rejected me um, from being their king uh, God had this plan already to bring a king in but because of Israel's impatience God then gave them Saul Saul was never the king that God wanted them to have but it was a result of their, their crying out and everything else um, and this is one of those prophecies that underlies that uh, there's also another one that we're going to look at um, hello Maxie <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> there's, a, there's another prophecy that's uh, hidden in the text in that passage we looked at in Genesis which uh, I'm going to look at next week because that's just incredible as well um, but I just I just thought I'd mention that because again some of these things just help to fill in maybe some of the blanks um, okay verse 13 so Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife and went in unto her and the Lord gave her conception and she bare a son and it says and she uh, she was barren for about 10 years or so when she was in Moab and now she's come back and she has a child and she comes back if you like to Bethlehem Ephrathah that fruitful place and now she has a child and the verse 14 and the woman said unto Naomi blessed be the Lord which has not left thee this day without a kinsman that his name may be famous in Israel um, it's interesting again when we think now that when Naomi came back from Moab she told people to call her Mara, which means bitterness, because she said the Lord has dealt you know, harshly with me. Um, if only she could have seen then what she knew now. Uh, when she looks at this point in the story, she realises all that God had done. Uh, and it's a lesson to all of us that we need to learn to walk by faith and not by sight, trusting that all things work together for good. Because in this situation, it's clearly a case that you know, Naomi had been incredibly blessed. She'd got all her effectively land back and title back and everything else. And she's now become somebody that probably everybody's going to, every village is going to want to talk to. She's ceased to be a poor person now because she's, you know, the, the family connection. And obviously Boaz was very wealthy and all of these things. Um, and how also we can echo the praise of the people. Because um, even though Adam died as a result of sin... God didn't leave us without a kinsman. Um, with Naomi, 
Um, as they say, blessed be the Lord which has not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. Well, God didn't leave us without a kinsman, uh, and he's the one whose name will not only be famous in Israel, but we're told in Habakkuk um, that the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um, this morning um, I cycled and I just went down onto the seafront and I cycled along and I love looking out and every time I look at the sea I, I think of that verse you know that one day the, the, the earth will be filled of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and, you know, and they do a pretty good job the waters of covering the sea I think you'll agree yeah, but that's how it's going to be everybody will know you know, not just know of Jesus they will know Jesus they will know that this is the one that's reigning in Jerusalem and obviously it was to be um, effectively uh, Naomi's descendant that was going to be sitting on the throne um, in Jerusalem with King David. So the last uh, three verses, or the last few, sorry, not three verses, last half dozen verses. Verse 15, and it shall, it shall be unto thee, uh, sorry, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of life and a nourisher of thine old age for thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better than thee than seven sons has borne him. So talking now of this child, um, the fruit of the relationship of Boaz and Ruth was to be a restorer of life and a nourisher of old age. Um, and the fruit of a life that is united with our kinsman redeemer will also be a restoration of life and nourishing of our old age. Um, and it's interesting, this this kind of better than seven sons. You know, that was, in a sense, looking back to the old life and what really the implication is here, um, that the fruit of this relationship is going to be better um, than anything the old life has to offer. Uh, and that's the way it is for us as Christians. You know, What God can offer us, this new life that we have in Jesus, uh, is better than anything the old life could ever offer. Um, and then a, a kind of a, a strange um, bit here where the neighbours actually name the child. It says, uh, verse 16, Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. Uh, and the woman... And her, uh, sorry, and the woman, her neighbours, gave it a name, saying, "There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Uh, Obed means the serving one or the worshipping one. Um, and uh, how appropriate that the one um, given life by the kinsman redeemer is called the serving or worshipping one uh, again." Uh, and then we just conclude with that uh, list of names that we've already just gone through. Uh, as we mentioned, there, David was the 10th generation from Pharaoh's, um, legally entitled to sit on the throne and to serve before the Lord on behalf of the congregation. So that brings us up to the end of the book. Um, what we'll do next week is go through, um, really we're going to go through most of the book again, but we'll be looking at the models, uh, and there really are, there's so, so many. So whether we'll do it all next week or uh, we'll go into the week after, I don't know. Uh, I also want to show you that bit in Genesis um, 38. Uh, another prophecy hidden in the text, actually in the letters themselves, um, showing that David was to be the one that God had planned. You know, way before it wasn't just a, a kind of an accident or mistake. Uh, this was all part of God's, all, God's plan from the start. So there we are.